We just had an incredible conversation with Jay Scott Smith. Hopefully you all listened to part one, which is all about storytelling, how he excels in that in his career. And our conversation was an hour and 45 minutes, so we broke it into two parts. And this is really getting into talking about social injustices, racism, being a good ancestor. And Jay opened up to us so much and shared his experience. And I'm so glad that we were able to shine the spotlight on him to amplify his voice. And that's really been at the heart of what we've been trying to do in reaction to the social injustices that we're facing. And I think that it was so important to us to actually sit down and have a conversation about this because we have a community and the whole premise of our community is that we grow together. And honestly, we can't grow if we're not sitting, listening, learning, reflecting, and being open to each other. And especially for us, we're a community of entrepreneurs and we're always diving into personal development. And what's really awesome about that is that we're always trying to be better than we were yesterday. And that's essentially what we wanted to do here with this conversation. Agreed. And, you know, we can't say enough thank yous to Jay for sharing his heart and sharing his story with us. I think that these are the conversations we need to continue to have and, you know, open up the floor to have more of them. So we just, you know, we had the best time talking to him and we can't thank him enough for coming on and speaking with us about this. So I'm excited for everyone to hear this. Let's get into it. One of the things that we have been very interested in is using our platform to amplify stories and voices that are being unheard right now with all of the social justices. And you mentioned that we spoke in January and it feels like it has been years since that time (laughs) with everything that's been going on. And we wanted to open up this podcast to you too, to share what you want to share. Oh boy. So what's crazy is, because when Laura mentioned this, we talked in January and you, you couldn't have told me that for one, we would get hit by a pandemic that would effectively shut the world down. And then in the midst of the pandemic, this country would have to have a come to Jesus meeting about the racism that has basically driven it since the 1600s. And obviously I'm black, very much so, can't hide it, don't want to. But to understand being black in America, and I recently did the last, actually the last episode, the most recent episode I did was about two weeks ago. It was not long after George Floyd's death and before everything really went, really went haywire in Minneapolis, is the thing about being black in America is that you're always on guard. At 40 years old, my mother is more afraid of me being shot by a police officer than me being killed by some criminal on the street or some dude breaking in my house. This makes it really difficult because my father was a police officer in Detroit for 33 years. And I always tell this story to kind of give an idea of what a dangerous, pretty much dangerous life you tend to lead just by being black. There was one episode of the podcast where I talked about being trailed by a cop when I was in college in in the year 2000 when I was at Michigan State. That's episode 80. And a few years prior to this, I get my driver's license September 5th. It showed up on my 16th birthday, September 5th, 1995. My dad taught me how to drive. 
we would drive around empty parking lots. He would show me how to turn, do turn signals, everything else. He t- took me out on the highway because my mom, she just was a little too skittish about me driving. So my dad did all the work. And the day I got my license, I'm just fired up because I got my driver's license. And my dad gets home from work and he comes in. He sees the driver's license. He's like, cool. Let me, and he walks me outside. He's like, let me, uh, let me talk to you. So we have to talk. Now, teenagers, we have to talk. The talk, obviously. But when you're a black male, you have the talk about sex, and then you have the talk about the police. My dad, at that point, was a cop, had been a cop for 20, so 95, he'd been a cop 22 years by then. He had actually dealt with a large amount of racism as a police officer in his own department, in his own precinct. I didn't know this until after he retired, because he didn't talk about it at all until after he retired. But he looks at me with a straight face and just says to me, and the words didn't quite resonate with me initially. He says to me, all right, here's what you got to do. If someone, because he's in his full uniform, he tells me this. Here's what you got to do. If someone who's dressed like me pulls you over, listen to me, understand what I'm saying, do exactly what I tell you. All right. Yeah, cool. No problem. Do exactly what I tell you because I know what they'll do to you. It didn't register. When, I, when he said that, I thought he meant they'll arrest me. And mind you, this is three years after Rodney King. I've seen the video. I, I was 12 when I saw the Rodney King video. So I've seen the Rodney King video. I've seen what happened in L.A. And he says to me, I know what they'll do to you. And he breaks the whole thing down. Make sure that you have both hands on the wheel. Make sure that everything you need is readily available. If a cop pulls you over, make sure you get your license and registration. Put it up on the dash in front of the steering wheel. Don't make a whole lot of eye contact. Say yes, sir. Say no, sir. Be as polite. Be as friendly. And whatever you do, don't don't get smart with them. Don't ask them too many questions. Answer the questions that you need to answer. If they want to search the car, you simply tell them you can't do that without an attorney. He broke this whole thing down for me, and he he said it again. I know what they'll do to you. So five years later, when I got a cop trailing me around Michigan State University one night after I leave a Burger King, just driving back to my dorm after a party, his words started echoing in my ear, and that's when it was like, holy shit, this all makes sense now. He wasn't talking about getting arrested. First time I had a cop pull a gun on me was that night. I'm getting out of my, he follows me all the way into the parking lot. I pull up in my parking lot. I start to get out of my car. This cop shines a really bright flashlight on me. And I didn't initially recognize that the gun was in his hand. He turned the floodlight on in the car, comes out of the car, guns on his waist. No matter what I was wearing, no matter what I was doing, he didn't care. He saw a black dude driving around in a car on a, on a Saturday night. The thing is, he never even told me what he was following me for because I didn't make an illegal turn. wasn't speeding. My taillights worked. My registration was current. I did everything right. He followed me just to screw with me, to see if he could find something. And that is, in a nutshell, the obvious racism and things that we deal with. Any one of us could be George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Trayvon Martin or Rodney King, who didn't die, but he got beaten. Or Malice Green, a a man who was beaten to death by police officers two years later in Detroit. The countless others who've had their lives taken either in police custody or by people who thought that they were police. Because that's the other thing. I'm six feet tall. Thanks to this quarantine, I'm probably a lot closer to 210 than 200. But I'm six feet tall, I'm 40 years old, and I'm black. And I intimidate people when I walk in a room. You, Laura, you know me. 
I'm not very intimidating no. <laughs> when I come in a room. I tend to be pretty nice. I tend to be pretty nice to people, but I'm intimidating because I'm black. If I raise my voice, even if I even question something, because it's not just the obvious things with police violence and racial violence. A lot of it is microaggressions. I've worked in newsrooms since I was 16, and way too often I've heard the word angry or too loud or too aggressive thrown in my direction when I was asking a question or when I provide a counterpoint to something. Too often I've seen black women get cast aside as angry or moody or aggressive in office situations. I've been that guy who's been falsely accused in offices of being angry. In 2017, I had been complaining to people in my office about the treatment I was receiving from a coworker. It was a white woman. And they decided to turn it into a referendum on my quote-unquote job performance instead. The second time it happened, I went to them again, and I told them straight up, this is what happened. She was completely unprofessional. We need to do something about this. We have a meeting. She shows up 15 minutes late for, and in the 15 minutes, I'm being accused again of being a, having a poor job performance and even being told, well, maybe if you perform better, she wouldn't talk to you that way. This is coming after I've won multiple awards for my work. She finally shows up and then in the middle of the room says, I was the one who aggressively came at her and was yelling and screaming at her and started to fake cry, similar to Amy Cooper in that park in New York on Memorial Day, which has almost been forgotten because of the killing of George Floyd. And initially they started to believe her before I pulled up all sorts of proof that it was the other way around. And even then they took her side more than mine. People will always cast aspersions on you, and it's always difficult that no matter what I wear, no matter how educated I am, no matter how many degrees I have, I got two, no matter how many awards I've won, I've got at least five or six, probably got at least a couple more coming next year, no matter how many awards I win, no matter how well-spoken I am, no matter if I wear glasses, don't wear glasses, wear a hoodie, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a polo, full suit, I'm always seen as a danger to people specifically because of being a black man. And those are the types of things that, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's in a convenience store, almost every black man has a story about being followed around a department store, being followed around a Target, being followed around a convenience store, black women being followed around like beauty supply stores because they think we're criminals. It's just assumed criminality. There's there's governmental a governmental system that that paints out black people as welfare queens and kings, despite the fact that a majority of the people who are on welfare programs are white, that whenever a black person is killed in police custody for the longest time, it was, well, maybe he shouldn't have been resisting or how do you, or he came right at me. He overpowered me. He was just so, he, he just scared me. I was just fearing for my life. He charged at me. And then you see video and the guy didn't charge at him and he was half his size and the police officer aggressively attacked him. And the cop still gets acquitted. It's a thing where you feel like you're behind the eight ball. You're behind the eight ball in everything from, from work, whether you're working in a particular place, you own a business. I just saw a video of a guy who owns a store in Alabama. He was robbed. He calls the police. And this guy is a store owner. He's chased the guy who robbed him out of the store with a gun. The cops pull up. And as he's about to address the police officer and tell them what happened, the cop runs up and punches him in the face. And they tackle him to the ground and put him in handcuffs. He was the owner of the store. They just assumed immediately he was a criminal. It, you can own a business and be told you don't belong there. You can 
be in your own car driving in your own neighborhood and be told you don't belong there. People are getting police officers pulling up in front of their houses demanding ID while they're sitting in front of their own house. Henry Louis Gates was arrested for trying to get into his own house. Your own home. This man is a PhD. Doesn't matter. They just saw a black dude breaking into a house that he happened to live in himself. Everything happens. It's all the way down to relationships. I always point this out. Like interracial relationships aren't as taboo as they used to be, but they're still taboo when a black man is involved because there's a sense of shame if someone brings a black man home. It's, it cuts like a knife because after a while you get tired of trying to prove you're, you're human. You get tired of trying to validate your humanity. That's what eats at so many of us. I can't speak for black women because I'm not a black woman. I see what black women go through, but only a black woman could truly speak to what she deals with all the time. So I more or less speak from my perspective as a black man. What black women go through is like you take what we go through, plus you throw sexism and misogyny on top of it, and Lord knows what else you got to deal with. As black men, we're just tired of being policed physically and mentally and being told from the point when we're small children that there's a ceiling on where you're supposed to be. Even if you're a pro athlete like LeBron James, you're told to shut up and dribble and that your voice doesn't matter and nobody cares, but of course everybody does. And you deal with microaggressions. You deal with It's not always being called a racial slur. I grew up in Michigan. Michigan doesn't seem like the type of place that would be a bastion for racism. But oh, baby, you go 50 miles northwest of Detroit into Livingston County, you're greeted by a whole lot of Confederate flags. Going to Jackson, Michigan, same thing. It's everywhere. We're always being forced to have to validate why we're here, why we're around. I had a teacher tell me in sixth grade, as I was about to win a spelling bee, that I spelled the word congenial, C-O-N-G-E-N-I-A-L. Classroom applauds. The young lady who I was up against, young white girl named Meredith, she's one of my, really one of my good friends even to this day. We still talk about this. That the teacher then immediately interjects and says that the word was wrong. And everybody in the room looked at her like, wait, what? What do you mean the word's wrong? He spelled it right. No, he didn't. He said, he, he, he said, he said C-O-N-B-E-N. And I was like, no, he said G. Like, everybody's like, no, he, he, he said it. He got it right. Well, I think he's been cheating anyway, so he's disqualified. Now, she couldn't back this up. And I said to her, well, why would you think I was cheating? I'm 11 years old. I'm completely just flummoxed by this. I was like, what do you mean? Why would you think I'm cheating? Because someone like you wouldn't know how to spell words like these. Remember earlier I mentioned I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, a quick learner. I was reading at a young age. I was tested a year earlier, 10 years old. I was reading at the level of a college sophomore. At 10, I would have been in a lot of get, gifted and advanced classes if the school had them available. But someone like you doesn't know how to spell words like that, so you're disqualified. You're cheating. And awarded it to Meredith, and Meredith, I remember, walks over and tries to hand me the trophy that they gave her. because She said, I didn't win this, you did. That's That was like the first time it really kind of cut me because every black kid, black boy, black girl has that first moment where their innocence gets ripped away and you're reminded that you're less than. And that was the first time it got me. That thing hit me like a fastball in the ribs. It, it, was, it was not fun. And ever since then, I've always been kind of leery about that. I've used to put up with a lot of crap about how I talked because black people don't talk that way. You talk like a white boy. Why do you sound like that? got made fun of. I did whole history projects, stand-ups in ninth grade. The kid says to me, why do you talk like a white boy? What's wrong with you? I reacted violently to that particular one. (laughs) Threw a dictionary at the kid's head. 
you probably don't want to say that to somebody who's got one of the strongest throwing arms on your baseball team. And I put up with that for years. And it makes you slowly but surely hate yourself a little bit. And you question whether you're worth it. You see how easily people can get away with killing you, abusing you, stealing from you, keeping you out of jobs, paying you less. It, again, that's not even factoring in how women get paid less than us and we get paid less than everybody else. This is what the basis of this is. When people say black lives matter, this is what we mean. Not to have some jackass walk in and say, all lives matter. True. But if your house is on fire, do you want the fire department to put your fire out or would you want them to go spray down everybody's houses because all houses matter? Doesn't work that way. All lives, quote unquote, do matter. And if all lives matter, then why don't you get your ass alongside us and show us how much this particular set matters? It's meant as a divisive thing. We're told so often to shut up and take it. And we don't have to anymore. Well, we never really had to, but now we're finally finding the, the real voice to say, screw this, we're not going to take it. And sometimes you have to force that sort of thing. I know this is me rambling on pretty long. I will close with this. Even in the newsrooms in America right now, there's a reckoning. Because a lot of times when people like me have tried to tell stories about the black community and issues that are affecting us, we get dismissed as being biased. That, well, are you sure you can objectively talk about that? This goes back to what I talked about knowing your audience. Nobody knows a black audience better than a black man or a black woman. If somebody is a fashion designer, would you tell them, are you sure you can object objectively write about the fall fashion line? No. You send them in there and they do it. If somebody's a football player, would they tell this football player is going to do color commentary on an NFL game? Well, you know, we don't know if you can be objective. You played against this team. No. But if a black writer like me or black radio broadcaster wants to do a story about the effect of the 2016 election on communities of color and the LGBT, and I'm a part of the most prominent community of color, and I know people who are black, who are gay, who are lesbian, who are trans, who are scared, who are Muslim, who are scared, don't come at me and tell me, you don't know if I can be objective. I know my audience. I know how to get to them. I know how to talk to them because I can relate to them. The fact that I can relate to them makes the story better. Racism is not just simply ingrained in this country. It's passed on like an heirloom. It's just every generation gets it a little bit differently. This generation has dealt more with the covert microaggressions, whereas my mother's generation, she was born during Jim Crow, Alabama, where it was open segregation. And we go to her grandmother, who was living in the late 1800s, was born a slave. It's a straight line. And we carry that as black people. And we're tired of carrying the weight. And that's what these last couple of weeks have been. Really, it's not a couple of weeks. It's really been decades coming. The fact that it comes at a time where COVID is also a, still a major thing only adds to it. That people are willing to risk their lives in the, in the midst of a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting black people, by the way, to march for and protest for and demonstrate for and rally for our rights. It's pretty, it's pretty astounding. And the thing that I've always said is we simply want people to see us as equals, as humans. I'm thankful that people like Laura, where Laura, you have such an amazing heart and an amazing spirit. Like you're such a lovely person that I get it from you, that you understand it. 
the way you treated me the first time I walked in a place like Flourish, you treated me like you'd know me forever. And I'll never say that, right? Because even people say they're colorblind. That's not exactly true. People see it, but you saw it and it didn't matter. And I appreciate that because I admittedly, I always worry when I walk into spaces like this, is like, they're going to see me. So I got to try to look as safe as I can. So they don't think I'm coming in here to rob the place or be some sort of a troublemaker, even though I'm not trying to do that. It's a level of insecurity that you have when you walk in rooms. And I don't feel that when I walk into floors and I don't feel that when I'm around Laura. And I am so grateful for that. But there's so much that's got to change. And what people are seeing is a lot of anger, a lot of it. And the one heartening thing is I'm seeing a lot more people that look like Laura who are just as angry as people who look like me. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm so sorry for everything that you've had to deal with and everyone in the ba- in the black community. One of the greatest things and sayings that I found in Layla Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, about anti-racism, is the idea of being a good ancestor. And I see so much hope because like you said, everybody, not everybody, but so many people are angry. And that's good because we need the moderate people who aren't racist to be anti-racist and to be a good ancestor for generations to come. And one of the most important things that we've done with Flourish and just as individuals is taking on the responsibility to listen and educate ourselves and more than anything, share our platform to be a spotlight on those voices who need to be heard. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to share your story. And I think a lot of people feel the heaviness of your story and of situations that you've been in. And these voices and amplifying these voices is such an incredible way to create change. So thank you, Jay, so much for sharing your story. I mean, the fact that you were even willing to listen to me, because you said something earlier that I really, um, that really kind of struck a chord with me is that you said, you don't want me to educate you. Here's the thing. I don't have a problem doing it because I always feel people at least once, I'll do it once. <laughs> I will do it once. If people are genuinely they genuinely want to understand it, I'm going to hear them out because too often we've had a lot of people who are just bad faith actors who don't really care, who say they're really interested, but they really don't give a damn. I'm willing to help because I've always been the type of person where I don't, if you're fully apologetic, people are willing to change. They can change. They can change their outlook. I do believe that, but you have to be sincere. And I know sincerity pretty quickly. You are very sincere. So I never worry. I don't worry about that out of you. The people who want to learn, they can learn. But you also just watch the reaction of people in times like this. There are some people who are proactive and they really want they really want to kind of look in the mirror and see their own prejudices. And then you also look at the reaction of people who when they hear Black Lives Matter and they immediately say, I'm never going to support this business again, or I'm, or all lives matter, everything. You're, you're really getting behind this. Those are people I'm not going to waste my time on. Those aren't people I'm going to talk to because it's ingrained in your head that what's going on is about you. 
or what's going on is made up. You don't even want to accept the fact that it's reality. It has been that reality forever. But if people are willing to work with us, talk to people, understand people, I'll happily work with you. I'll happily educate you once. <laughs> you, don't get a, you don't get to fail the class and come back. <laughs> you, you, you get it one time. I'll help you out once. Because some people genuinely want to help. And sometimes the best thing is to just listen. That's it. The best thing is to just listen. So much of this could have gotten along so much quicker if people had just listened to us. Listen to black men. Listen to black women. Listen to brown men and brown women because they got their own story too. They deal with just as much racism as we do. The reason I'm so in tune with LGBT community, even though I'm not gay, one of my closest friends when I was in middle school, he's black. He came out to his parents and his parents basically shunned him and he took his own life two weeks later. And I've always felt like I could have done more for him. I didn't even realize it was that difficult for him until he was until I found out he was gone. So it's always been in my nature to want to be there for people and help people and help them understand, be a listening ear to them. Because that's how things get further along. You can have all the legislation, all the laws, everything else you want. But if you don't change the attitudes, it's the attitudes that are poisoned more than anything else. I can't speak for how, how you ladies grew up. I don't know a whole lot about Westchester, Pennsylvania, but I know this much. There are in every town like that in this country, because there's towns like Westchester in Michigan, there's an element of that where people have to be kind of reworked, reeducated. If they're willing to learn, I'm willing to at least talk to them because I can't be that hard edge where it's like, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. You just got to figure it out. No, if you want to know, I'll tell you. Now, whether you listen to it or whether you absorb it and take it in, that's on you. But I'm one to help and I'm one to explain. And that's where it comes from with me. I appreciate that. And what we were sharing, and this was before the podcast started, was that we didn't want you to feel an obligation to educate us because I think it is the responsibility of everyone in the world right now to educate themselves. And there are so many resources. And I don't think that it's fair to put that on anyone in the black community as their responsibility to educate people in the white community or other communities, because truly that's our responsibility. Oh, I get that. And it's appreciated. It'd give me more time to do other things. (laughs) 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 I do. And I get exactly where you're coming from with that. My thing is, is like the school I teach in is a historically black college. So like 98% of the kids here are black. So thankfully I don't have that much of an issue to worry about in terms of that, but I've got white friends and I've had white friends reach out to me and say, what can I do better? And I'll always listen. I'll always answer that question. In some cases, like you really don't have to do much, but in some cases like here's, here's maybe what I would suggest, or here's what you could do. Or if you see something like this, this is why we react this way, that, that sort of thing. I ask women that I know what's ways that I could be better. What's ways that I could do better in supporting you? When I, I've asked this question a ton of my gay friends of what can I do to be a better ally to you guys? Because the black community does have a very distinct history of homophobia. And I'm trying to change a lot of that too. So I always will ask like, hey man, is there something I'm doing wrong here? Or what do I say in a situation like this? Just so I know, because I don't want to be that guy. So it's like, I've always kind of thought about that as like, I get it because we are asked to be the mule 
and carry the weight and carry that emotional labor. In a lot of cases, it's put on us. It's kind of similar to when I talked to Jamel Hill on episode 100 of the podcast. And this idea that as black people, we're expected to forgive all the time, be the bigger person all the time. That when racism occurs to us, we should be the one who should go over over and beyond to make sure that they don't feel like they're wrong for what they do, to apologize to them. And at a certain point, it's just like, why is it on us to do that? And that's that emotional weight that I will not carry. That's the, that's the weight I'm not carrying. But if you need help or you need to understand, and I mean this sincerely, because I don't just consider like you just simply somebody that I interviewed on a podcast. I consider all of the DeFrancesco's friends. There's so many of you. <laughs> and there's, I, I consider all of you friends. And if there's anything I can do, if you got a question, if something confuses you, I'm here because that's my thing. I, I admit that because sometimes it is just as much about understanding each other as respect. Because if you understand somebody, it's a lot easier to find the respect angle. So I get that. And I do appreciate that you feel I didn't need to carry the weight on that. And in certain instances, I won't. But I, um, I'm willing to help if need be, especially when I know that it's genuine. So like from Laura and from Lindsay and Casey, I feel like it's genuine. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. Thank you so much. I so appreciate that. You know, and Jay, you also, you have a podcast and I recommend everyone to listen to this episode, the episode that's podcasting while black. And in that episode, you say, if you're white in this country, your humanity is guaranteed. But if you're black or brown, your humanity is optional. And I feel like something that has been forgotten is that we're all humans. Like we're living, we're loving, we're feeling beings, you know, and especially right now, the black community deserves this equal treatment, this equal opportunity and ultimately respect. And all of our differences are something that should be so celebrated. And with all these topics that we're discussing right now, whether it's racism or white supremacy, segregation, they're all rooted in such negativity. And maybe that's like hate or fear or judgment. And now what I really feel like is love and, and this love and this light that you're offering right now. And we need love and respect. And, and ultimately, we need radical inclusion so that everyone feels supported. And you said, you said earlier that the Black community feels exhausted. And I would like to say that I honestly don't think that you guys have been carrying this weight. And I just don't even think that it's your problem that needs to be solved. Like, it's not your job to solve this problem. I feel like it's the white community's job to solve this problem. Because you wouldn't go up to a bully or someone who's being bullied and then say to the person who's being bullied, like, fix this, fix this person who's bullying you. You know, and in the same way, I just feel like right now what we need is a crazy amount of love and a crazy amount of inclusion to fix this. Oh, absolutely. And Lindsay, that... For one, the fact that you went back the podcasting while black, that's episode 80. That was from that was almost 2 years ago I did that episode and it's crazy that it's actually still very relevant today. That same episode featured a conversation I had with the two women who shot the infamous Starbucks video in Rittenhouse in Philadelphia. And that all comes together. Mm -hmm. I will say this. My one free bit of advice to people, especially for my white people listening, but also 
If you're a Latino and listening to this, because this is an issue in those communities. If you're Asian and you're listening to this, if you know somebody who's racist, whether it's an older relative or a friend of yours or someone close to your family, if someone in your circle is racist, call them out. Call them out. Too often there are racist people floating in everybody's circle who's been pretty much been allowed to cook and just be racist. And the most they get is they either get ignored or it gets brushed off or, oh, well, that, that's just how they are. We, or, you, or you say something, but you don't say it out loud. Say it out loud. There's no place for that. Whether you want to be polite about it or you could be like me and I probably wouldn't be nearly as polite. But you got to just start calling it like you see it. There are people with older relatives, family members, aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins who are just flat out racist it's the same it's the same way you would call out somebody for being sexist it's the same way you would call out somebody for being a homophobe or a xenophobe you call out racism where you see it because people have gotten a little too comfortable being racist and i'll say it the last 4 years especially gotten a touch too comfortable and that needs to stop there's so much of that that has been ingrained in it and you can't it's just it's terrible and thankfully, obviously, people of because I'm not sure how old, Lindsay, you are, but the younger generation gets it a lot more than the older generation does. And it takes some of the younger generation, those younger than me, I'm not exactly old, but, the, but those younger than me who can really push this forward because that's what makes this, that's how it lives. Racism gets passed down from generation to generation. At a certain point, these generations have got to toss that in the garbage. So why not get that started now? We get to the point where we're like, no, you can't make, you can't say that about somebody. No, doing that is racist. No, you're not going to make somebody feel unwelcome in a neighborhood or in a business. No, you're not going to follow them around. Why are you why are you so suspicious of them? You have to make racists uncomfortable again. Make them feel unwelcome again. And it takes that takes a little bit more aggressive action. And I like that little by little people are starting to do that because that's needed. It's, it's needed. Thank you so much for just sharing all of this with us. And obviously, you know, as white women, we'll never experience this firsthand. But I think that these conversations are so important to have and so important for people to hear. Another thing that you said on your podcast that really stuck with me was you said each generation gets a different version of racism. So that doesn't look like what, you know, your mother or your grandmother went through. But we're living in a different time with these more subtle microaggressions. And in my learning so far, I think I've been, you know, learning so much about the systemic aspect and how, you know, we should be equally as enraged when we're learning that COVID-19 is killing more African-Americans than white people. Like we should be equally as enraged and looking into solving systemic issues like that. Um, and just breaks my heart. So I wanted to ask you, what should people be doing to make systemic changes towards racism? Is that voting, activism? What, what do you think? It's a combination of a lot of things. But the primary thing is it starts with just the attitude. I go back to the baseball analogy. Some of the things we want to take care of, that, that's at second base or third base. We haven't gotten off of first base of just getting people to stop being racist. You have to change the ideals. Like I said earlier, it's like people are poisoned. The water is bad. The milk's gone bad, and you you got to get a new gallon of milk in there. 
you, you got to change the, the attitudes will change. You, it has to be at the foundation, at the base. You start at the foundation. The attitude changes, the system changes. Because too often, the system has been set up where they look at African Americans, they look at Latinos, they look at poor whites, they look at Asians, and they say, screw them. They're, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. If a bunch of them get sick and die, who's it hurting anyway? They don't mean anything. As long as high-profile rich people don't start getting sick, we don't care. That attitude has to be fixed. And once you can fix that attitude, then you start really – and activism is one of those ways to do it. Then you can get into, obviously, such, such things as voting. Voting is huge. People getting out and going to vote. If you're able to, I'm not counting. I'm not talking about the voter suppression that's going on in large parts of this country, especially like today, for example, as we're recording this, the state of Georgia has a primary and it is a disaster down there because of the systems that have been put in place to intentionally either slow the vote or stop people in areas that are predominantly black from voting. It's a holdover from the poll taxes and the, the reading tests and all the other nonsense used to disenfranchise black people going back to the 1920s and 30s and 40s. It's no different. But in order to get there, we got to change the attitudes first. Before you even try to get over to second base, you got you to get to first. And then we can get advanced to second. And then we get to third where we really start to break down everything and really start to change that. The laws in this country that are still inherently racist, the drug laws in this country. I, I can get on a soapbox about these things. It's like the, the drug laws in this country that are that were always set up to basically disproportionately affect black men and black women, where the same, where you get the same amount of jail time for a certain amount of crack as opposed to a certain amount of powder cocaine. The idea that some people can end up going to jail for the rest of their life for a petty crime, or, or two people, one black, one white, commits the exact same crime. One dude gets four months or gets four months or six months in jail. Another guy gets 25 years for the exact same crime, same record, everything. It's disproportionately set up for one to fail the other. And you can't do that. I mean, even down to, I mentioned it earlier, like even with interracial relationships, like as recently as 2000, there were laws on the books in states in this country that prohibited interracial relationships. It took till 2000. They were outlawed in 1970. It took till 2000 for it to come off the books in Alabama. This country has it ingrained in it. It's going to take a full-on aggressive push. Too many years people have sat back and waited. This hopefully is the start of something more aggressive. Almost instead of the term progressive, it would be aggressive because that's what it needs to be because you don't make changes in a vacuum and you don't make changes piecemeal overnight. The civil rights movement took 20 years, but that was pretty damn aggressive. And you have to, you have to push that. That's where it really starts in my eyes. That's where it really starts. And we do this one at a time. Everybody has to be in with it. And white women, for example, we, we feel we have more. White women do a whole lot more for us as black people. Yeah, there's also some very highly problematic white women at the same time. Please don't. Anybody hears this, don't think I'm just forgetting about them. I've, I did a whole thing on Amy Cooper and the Amy Coopers and other people's lives. That is a very real thing. But I've also noticed that when there are white people who are out there marching and out there really getting with it, it's a lot of white women. We appreciate that. We just need more of you. <laughs> we need a lot more of you. And it's a daily thing. I love that we're able to talk about this because this is what's needed. It's a dialogue. And there's a lot of listening involved. 
which is all I ever wanted and which so many of us have wanted. We just want people to listen to us. And it took something as horrific as George Floyd's death to finally get people to start to listen. And that's why this is such an important important conversation. And I appreciate you bringing up episode 80 because, hell, that'd get more people to listen to it because it's just as timely now as it was two years ago, sadly. But it's the same thing. This hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is the date on the calendar. But we've got to hopefully stop that. Thank you, Jay. And we've shared about the your podcast a couple times, JSC Radio, J. Scott Confidential Radio. And it's such a great podcast. And I encourage everyone to check it out. We'll include it in the show notes. Can you also share where else people can find you? Well, I can certainly do that. The podcast can be heard on all your favorite podcast providers. I'm talking about Apple Podcasts, better known as iTunes. Of course, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Google Podcasts. It's on Overcast. It's on CastBox. Tune in. And, of course, it's on two of the major ones, iHeartRadio. It's on the Radio.com app. And, of course, it's also on Spotify. And you can hear Laura when she came on the show back in January in episode 107. The episode is titled Come As You Are. And I also know that the show is also on YouTube. I also have a YouTube page. I have a bit.ly link for it, a shortened up link. It's bit.ly slash JSCTube. That has highlights of the show. It has some of the long form interviews. And I'm also going to start doing a series on my page called The Blueprint, where I'm actually helping people put together podcasts. And it's for people who are who you may not have like the fancy studios and all this money and everything to do it. It's for the DIY types of people like me and you who are putting this together on our own and kind of offering up ways to get your podcast off the ground, get things started. That's all on the YouTube page. That'll be YouTube exclusive. I'm also on social media, obviously J Scott Smith. I'm J Scott Smith on Instagram as well. I'm real J Scott Smith on Facebook. JSC Radio is just JSC Radio anywhere. It's on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. It's JSC Radio. And that's the best way to reach me. The podcast could always use as many subscribers. It could use as many. I would love to have some reviews, some five-star reviews on that thing to really drive this up too. And I've got a website coming soon. And anybody who wants to do business with me, who wants to have me come in and come speak to you, kind of do a seminar with you, help you with if you want to do some one-on-one stuff with storytelling, that you can email me at jscradio at gmail.com. jscradio, gmail.com. If you want to book me, do business with me, you want to have me come in and speak to you, you want to have me come in and do a seminar, do something on storytelling, I'm all in. Reach out to me. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. I encourage everyone to check everything out. We'll include everything in the show notes if you struggled to remember that so you can easily find all the links in the show notes go support jay give them a shout out subscribe rate and review his podcast thank you so much jay for coming on we so so appreciate it ladies i couldn't have asked for a better format to do this and i am unbelievably grateful for this like i said i don't get to be the guy who gets asked questions a lot so i have a this is this is new to me, and I was so stoked to do this. This is so cool, and I wish you guys the best on this podcast. And obviously, if there's anything I can do for you, and at some point when we're able to get back together in person again, I would love to do this again and just be able to see you guys again. And make sure you go to Flourish. I'm going to make sure I get a shout-out to Flourish 
in my next episode, which 114, by the way, episode 114 is going to be dropping likely on Thursday afternoon. I just got to edit the sound. I just did the interview for that. So that's going to drop Thursday afternoon. So be on the lookout for 114. And the most recent one was the special edition I did on just this subject matter a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, we can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I I do appreciate all the hospitality you guys have shown me. You're such wonderful people. Thanks, Jay. You know, same goes to you. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay. Thank you everyone so much for joining us for this week's We Grow Together podcast. We so appreciate you joining us, especially for these important conversations. They weigh heavy on us, what's going on in the world, and to be able to talk about it, to be able to talk about it in our company, to be able to talk about it with people we love and support like Jay, to be able to talk about it in our community is so important. And I feel like having a voice, amplifying the voices of those who are unheard is just the best thing that we can do. And I'm so proud of us that we are a part of that because I really think that the change needs to come from everybody. Every single person needs to take the responsibility to be a good ancestor. I agree. And Jay even said himself that the one thing that we really need to be focusing on and the one way that, you know, white people can really support this movement is just to listen. So, you know, if that's just the first step is changing your attitude, then, you know, you need to open up your heart and open up your mind and just listen to everything going on and then move forward from there. Definitely. And we want to thank everyone who's going on this journey with us and reflecting and learning as we all move forward and as we all grow together. Thank you. And thank you everyone always for all of your support. We so, so appreciate it. The best thank you that you can give is to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Every single week we give away a free month at Flourish, so be sure that you include your Instagram handle and your review so that we can give away and let you know if you win a free month at Flourish. And if not a month at Flourish, if you're not in the area, you'll also receive access to our social media management workshop and our money management workshop as a huge thank you that we give to you as an appreciation of your support. Share it with your friends, text someone you know, and Shout us out on social media. We would so appreciate it. You can tag us at Flourish Westchester. You can find me or tag me at Laura M. Francesco, And me, Lindsay, at Sweet Green Soul. And me, Casey, at Casey Blue. Thanks, everybody. Hope you have an amazing day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Francesco, founder and CEO of Dean Street Law. It's a corporate law firm that helps you with everything corporate law and has tons of free resources and guides on our website that you can find everything from protecting your company from liability, forming a startup, and the different types of entities, all the way to intellectual property and social media. So if you'd like some free information on the legal aspects of your business, head over to deanstreetlaw.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at deanstreetlaw. We provide a lot of free information. And always feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys.